Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. For this conversation, we're joined by Metrics Investment Director of Sustainable Finance, Allison Chan. Allison has packed a lot of career experience into a short amount of time, and we're going to talk about the state of sustainable finance in Australia, as well as its future, and how Allison got here. So, Allison, welcome to The Greener Way. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you went from being a lawyer to being an expert in sustainable finance? Sure, of course. Thanks, Rachel, for inviting me to The Greener Way. Um, It's really exciting to be making my podcast debut with you. I (laughs) became a climate quitter in 2017, long before I even knew what that was. After almost two decades as a banking and finance lawyer, I I took a sabbatical and I joined the board of a charity that was fighting food poverty. Uh, In those days, I learned a lot about inequality, food waste, and the role of policy and philanthropy on making people's lives better. And from there, I started to think about impact finance, um, but I was enjoying my newfound freedom and uh, I wasn't eager uh, to, to get back into the workforce straight away. I was living in London at the time, and one day I saw that as part of Climate Week, the Lord Mayor was hosting a day-long event, and I went along. Um, It was on sustainable finance. Uh, Sustainable finance was was new to me, but it sounded interesting. Uh, Sean Kidney, the chief executive of Climate Bonds Initiative, gave the opening keynote, and he blew me away. Uh, it's hard to believe now because we hear about climate in the news every day. But back in 2017, uh, I am ashamed to say that I didn't realize that we were on the precipice of climate catastrophe. Um, I don't think we should say ashamed. I mean, that's uh, we're all at a learning process. And I think if we're sort of, you know, the, it's progress, not perfection here. Um, but it's an interesting point, you know, sort of uh, two years after Paris, the Paris Agreement, we were still really, really struggling with implementation and, and finding some of these these solutions. And, you know, the idea of, of sustainable finance did sort of seem like an oxymoron, didn't it, Alison? Yeah, absolutely. Even though I was in banking and finance where, you know, sustainability is such a big thing uh, today, back in 2017, at least in the UK, it was all Brexit and Me Too taking up the column inches. So that uh, conference was a real turning point in my career and I guess also in my life because I ended up taking a role in the sustainable finance team of one of the Australian domestic banks and moved back home. <laughs> and what was that like at that point? Um, you know, moving from from London, which at that point, looking from this side of the world, was sort of shooting ahead on sustainability to come back to, you know, a place where we didn't have policy certainty around climate, uh, to say the very least. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was a good thing for me because I, I sort of got to grow with the market. And mm-hmm. um, I was really lucky that the role that I had allowed me to cover the the European borrowers. Uh, And so I got to keep up with what was going on in Europe and and still do, because as you say, Europe's leading and uh, we need to ensure the sort of interoperability between what we do here and and what we do there. And I think my legal background certainly helped um, with making that transition and you know, taking the building blocks of the green and social principles and applying them to, to new products like derivatives or securitizations uh, was, was really you know, enjoyable and, and mm. I'm really pleased to have been sort of at the um, beginning of that process. That's one of the things that's really um, fascinated me that, you know, as the idea of sustainable finance has evolved, um, the reach that it's had into different financial products, you know, beyond, you know, sort of 
corporate finance or bonds into mortgages, into things like security, securitization and derivatives. Um, it's it's neat <laughs> to, oh, you know, sort of get it, you know, to be able to discuss these things and be able to say, oh, look, there is a relationship between, you know, a future contract and the ESG implications um, of the company that's uh, that's on the other side of a transaction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my current role is uh, not so transaction focused. My team leads the sustainability efforts across the full spectrum of metrics activities, our activities with our investee companies, but also with our investors, our member organisations and what we're doing within the firm. Um, pleased to say we've got a very capable internal legal team who takes a, an active interest in sustainable finance. And I, I work closely with them in the areas where sustainable finance and the law converge. Um, and, you know, that could be things like executing the label transactions or sustainability reporting, disclosure or regulation. Uh, and if those worlds collide much further, I, I might soon be renewing my practicing certificate. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that, you know, given greenwashing uh, investigations and the level of interaction around compliance and legal, uh, you're, you're probably at a nexus that you didn't think you'd ever be at. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd left the law well and truly behind, but um, yeah, it still keeps my interest. Oh, it's another string in the bow. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you integrate sustainability in private debt and in corporate lending, Alison. So sort of building on where you were um, when you and I first started talking together to your new role at Metrics. Sure. So, I mean, ESG integration is a ticket to play in the local market. Australian asset owners um, require integration much more than their global peers. And just to recap, RIA defines ESG integration as the um, systematic and explicit inclusion of um, e, S, and G factors, environmental social governance factors, into the investment decision-making process. So ESG focuses on measurable risk and return on a set of mm -hmm. defined material factors. And, and metrics always integrated ESG in, in its investment decision-making process, you know, starting with due diligence and then leveraging our private market relationships with the entities in which we invest to manage the ESG risks uh, during the negotiation and, and documentation stage. But what we understand is that ESG is not enough anymore and the partners have asked me to help identify and implement the actions that we need to take to lead by example on sustainability. And the difference between ESG and sustainability is often blurred, but um, but we assess the two separately. You know, sustainability um, is harder to quantify because it's, it's necessarily forward-looking. Um, we're assessing the ability of the organisations to anticipate and adapt to a variety of long-term disruptions. So over the last two years, we've expanded our focus from that traditional lens that looks at the financial material ESG um, risks impacting on our investments um, to the more modern double materiality approach that also looks at the impact our investments have on the world at large. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we do that in a number of ways. We've developed and delivered industry-specific ESG and sustainability surveys that we have issued to each of our investee companies, and those surveys target the most material E, S, and G factors for the particular industry. And the questions that go to sustainability look at aspects like capabilities and embeddedness, capability being the ability to recognise and assess the emerging trends and potential business disruptions disruptors for that industry and embeddedness, the adaptability and agility of that firm to you know, uh, take advantage of uh, the opportunities that are before it. 
So as the responses to those surveys come in, we're getting a lot of really valuable, detailed insights uh, into how our investees approach their material issues and where there are gaps that, that can be plugged. So um, as part of this process, Alison, um, what does this result in? Um, you know, have you found that companies that are um, better capable of managing ESG risks and having strong sustainability practices um, are safer from a credit worthy perspective and therefore, you know, have a slightly lower interest rate associated with the transactions that you negotiate with them? Look, I think it's too soon to say whether mm. uh, improved sustainability is better credit risk. I certainly intuitively it is, but there's mm. there's not necessarily the, the depth of data to be definitive about that. I mean, there's some research in the UK on uh, green mortgages versus standard mortgages, which do indicate that, that there, there ought to be a pricing benefit. Mm. So, you know, I don't think we have enough data to actuarially quantify that now, but we can certainly you know, talk to borrowers about sustainability link loans and, and look at incentivizing them and offering a reward for mm. um, their efforts in reaching agreed sustainability targets. So what does this actually mean then in terms of the decision-making process at Metrics, Allison? Um, are there some transactions that don't proceed because there's significant enough concerns over ESG risks? Um, are there preferences in terms of other, other parts of the transactional deal for companies that you find are managing those risks better? Yeah, I mean, it probably wouldn't be a discussion about sustainability if we didn't touch on divestment. Um, yeah. But very briefly, you know, where a company's management demonstrates that um, it's willing and able to adapt its strategy to mitigate ESG-related risk, we would prefer to continue to support them than to walk away. Uh, having said that, we do have some negative screens and we have adopted a fossil fuel investment policy and each of those serve as red lines for us. I mean, more than divestment, we, we would prefer to continue to engage uh, with our borrowers. The, the conversations that we have off the back of those ESG surveys and of our due diligence are two-way discussions where we, we might have identified issues for um, periodic monitoring and, and will certainly raise issues uh, as emerging risks as they arise. Uh, so we'll be learning more about our borrowers and their progress over time, and, and they will take the opportunity to learn from us about how they're going against their peers and uh, in relation to international best practice. A lot of our borrowers are uh, in the private world, and so they don't necessarily have dedicated sustainability teams. And so they find the information that they can get from us uh, really valuable. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about what happens in Australia now that Australia has a legislative net zero target a little bit later. Uh, but first, I want to take a pause to tell our listeners about our inaugural ESG Power 50 list. Uh, we're in the final voting stage to identify the people who are working at ASX listed companies that are kicking goals on environmental, social and governance issues. Um, and we'd like to put it out there to our audience. Certainly, we invite all of our guests, but I won't put you on the spot, Alison. Uh, but certainly all of you listening to this podcast, uh, we'd like you to have our, your say on our finalists list by going to www.fssustainability.com.au backslash ESG Power 50 and vote for who you think are the most influential ESG professionals in Australia. Uh, we'll drop the link to that show to that uh, uh, to that voting list into our show notes for your convenience as well. Um, and the ESG Power 50 list is brought to you by FS Sustainability with our gold sponsor Schroeder's and our silver sponsors AXA IM, Colonial First State, and Clear Bridge Investments. I've already um, lodged my votes in the FS Sustainability 
uh, ESG power list, <laughs> Rachel. We thank you for it, Alison. Back to it. How do institutions like Metrics work towards net zero, both as individual institutions and as part of collective groups? Uh, John Dunn from uh, my high school uh, English classes taught me that uh, no man is an island. Is it the same for financial institutions? Absolutely. It's both an individual sport and a team sport. The recent history of finance and climate is that it's a settled discussion that decarbonizing the global economy is crucial for economic stability and financial returns. And now the focus has swung to how financial firms can make that happen. Uh, it's a shared question for firms in Australia, but also around the world. And reaching net zero is going to be a challenge, but the rewards are shared and they're huge. We joined the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, or NZAM, in 2021, and that's an international group of asset managers committed to aligning their investing with net zero emissions by 2050 and supporting the 1.5 um, goals of the 1.5 degree goals of the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. um, as an NZAM signatory, we've got access to processes and tools that we can use to manage the decarbonisation of our portfolios. And publicly setting targets and, and tracking progress against, that, against those targets is, is part of that process. So last year, well, we measured our carbon footprint, both operational and financed emissions, and we set science-based targets. And, and you can find our targets both on our website and the NZAM website. Uh, we'll drop some links to both Metrics and NZAM as well, just so our listeners have the ability to to read along at home. Um, are you comfortable with uh, that progress towards decarbonization? Because there's a when you make commitments like that, it's the uh, it's it's the devil in the details. Yeah, absolutely. But um, having a framework that sets out pathways for setting credible net zero targets and guidance on best practice for the kinds of policies that, that people should put in place on key issues like fossil fuel investment helps asset managers reduce the risk of unintended greenwashing. Um, it also reduces the risk of green hushing, where an organisation might keep its car targets quiet so that it can avoid accusations of greenwashing. And, and I think that's almost as bad. Because mm -hmm. how can we assess the ambition of organisations and hold them to account uh, if they're not mm -hmm. making their targets public? It also means they're not talking to journalists, which is always a problem for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're starting to draw to the close of our time, Alison. Um, so I did want to get to this uh, impact of, of now having a legislated net zero target in Australia. Um, so just, just as we get close to time, can you explain to me what this does? Um, you know, having a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030, um, how does that impact on lending and corporate debt activities? Yeah, well, clear targets really help businesses and lenders understand the direction of travel and the pace of change and, and plan accordingly. You know, Mark Carney talked about needing an energy transition on the scale of the industrial revolution at the speed of the digital transformation. And when financial institutions begin to model the disruption that will result from that, you know, fast, massive transformation and compare that against the strategies businesses have in place and their capability to adapt, it's going to become clear that some businesses will flourish and some will not survive. I, I think we'll see lenders applying increasingly levels of scrutiny of ESG and sustainability while they're deciding where to allocate their capital. And I, I think that the risk of, um, so the time frame in which the those risks might crystallise will become sooner and therefore lenders will need more confidence that those risks are being properly managed now mm -hmm. and that will directly impact access to finance. 
the market's already showing signs that those that cannot or will not transition will increasingly find it difficult to access cost-effective capital. On the other hand, the investments that are driving the transition are being rewarded with a greater selection of prospective lenders and sometimes consequent benefits on pricing and terms. There's nothing like the fierce urgency now to, uh, to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when it comes to uh, speeding up this transformation. Absolutely. It's going to be an exciting time. Best we buckle up. <laughs> and on that, let's leave it there. Alison Chan, the uh, Investment Director of Sustainable Finance at Metrics, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you like today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.